Він працював в мене так, таксистом, і він розводив різних людей. І він одного разу віз трьох молодих хлопців. Вони почали хамати, вони почали угрожати. І так як мого тата були з самого початку проблеми з серцем, і мій тато побіг до машини, щоб випити таблетки, але він не встиг, і він помер прямо на місці. У мене були хороші стосунки з батьком, і це було важко почути. When I first met Oleg, his dad just uh, died, and I invited him to the youth group in our church. After a couple months being in youth group, he started uh, praying to God, and uh, then he prayed and accepted God. It was an incredible feeling when you confess and accept Jesus. I grew up, I Старався більше дізнаватись цікавого. І тут так само, неочікувано для мене, так само знову ж був переломний момент. В сьомій ранку я встаю, і я чую, що мамі погано, і вона кричить на допомогу. І я підбігаю, і мама була дуже гаряча, і це була ужасна картина для мене. Вона щось хотіла мені сказати. І в той момент вона померла. When we got the news about Oleg's mom's death, it was devastating. Through the love from the church, through the love from the God, he kept his faith. He's still in the church. He involved in the ministry. He involved in the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary program for young leaders. And God gave him peace and encouragement. And God gave him healing through his love. Він відкрився мені як батько, і він дав мені церкву як мене. І літом, недавно, я прийняв хрещення, я поступив в семінарію. І я дуже радий, що я маю такого небесного батька. this morning with our children's choir and our musicians. We are so blessed to be here this morning. This is the introduction for our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's the probably the most important offering that we take as Southern Baptist. It goes to straight to missions. And so next week, uh, we will have our White Christmas in Gathering. And we have set as a goal $20,000 to reach, uh, to graze from missions. So pray about that as the Lord leads you to give to that offering next week. If you're a first-time guest, we are so honored by your presence and by your attendance. So you'll notice in our bulletin a little white uh, information card, our new connection cards. If you'd fill that out, 
turn that in at the end of the service. We'd be greatly appreciative of that. You also get to meet our pastor, and he'll give you a free copy of his book as well. So once again, we are so glad that you are here this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and for your many blessings. We thank you for this time of the year in which we can stop and pause and remember your glorious birth, but may we never forget your death and your resurrection as well, Jesus. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us, that you are the Lord that loves us, cares for us, and died for us. I pray, Jesus, that you be with those here today that are hurting, those here today that are seeking the greatest answer to life, and that is you, Jesus. I pray that they will make that decision today. Be with our pastor as he delivers the message you put upon his heart. And be with our service. May it bring honor and glory unto you, Lord Jesus. For we ask these things, your powerful, your precious, and holy name. Amen. Good morning, First Baptist Church. Let's sing together some songs of the season today. The first Noel, would you stand together and let's sing to the Savior today. The first Noel.
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Savior of the world was born. Finally, the one behind heaven's veil came to be earth's Come, all ye faithful. A great song of the season, one of our favorite Christmas carols here. Let's stand and sing together.
let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are most thankful for the blessings of this, the Lord's Day, for the opportunity that you've given us to come on this day to fellowship together, to assemble in Bible study and open and share your word with each other. Father, for your word that enriches our lives as we study. Father, we thank you for your guidance to us each and every day. Father, for your presence, we're thankful. For your mercy, we rejoice. For your omnipresence, for your blessings in our lives, we give thanks. Father, for the reason for this season, for loving us enough to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to this world as a babe in a manger, to grow into manhood and to sacrifice himself to your will, to a death on the cross, that he might shed his blood for the remission of our sins. We thank you, Father, for your Son, who is our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for your benevolence and for your love that is manifested in our lives each and every day. Father, in that we rejoice. And now as we come to worship, we pray that our worship will be true in spirit and that in that we will give you all the praise, honor, and glory for everything. That you, Father, through your power, can take these tithes and offerings that will be given, multiply them, bless them, and use them. That others around us might know, come to know the true meaning of this season. That they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Father, it is all of these things, the name of of your precious Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.
we are in for a treat uh, tonight and next Sunday night as our choir and praise team present wonderful music. Our praise team tonight, which is about half the choir, I think, is a part of that at some point or another. They're going to be sharing wonderful music and worship tonight. And then next Sunday night, our choir and, a, and an added orchestra will be here uh, for a wonderful time of Christmas. Don't you love Christmas music? And the joy it is to just be able to come together. We kind of music ministry pulls out all the stops during this time of year. And so thank you all for all your hard work and extra practices and things. It makes a lot of difference for us to celebrate the season in a wonderful way. When I was growing up, a home-cut Christmas tree out of the wild was as sacrosanct to my dad as a suit on Sunday morning. It was something that we did every year, and after an afternoon of searching for a Christmas tree out in the wild of Forest Hill on some family property, we'd return home, and Dad would then work for a good hour or two trying to make the wild tree look better than it really was. He would drill holes in the blank spots and cut branches from the bottom of the tree and put them in the holes and get it all better. And then we would drag the thing inside the living room and put it up in the living room. And mom and I would then begin decorating the tree. And we'd get it all decorated. And then we called daddy in to come do what he liked to do, which was to put garland and tinsel icicles all over the tree. And we did that every year until one year when I was in junior high, maybe, I said something about the garland being tacky. I mean, it was a good 20 years old and had lost a lot of its tinsel and the icicles were pretty old. I mean, it was the same bag we'd had my whole life. And um, after that year, we never had garland and tinsel on the tree anymore. Daddy, in fact, never even helped decorate the tree again as long as he lived. Apparently, I ticked him off. But thankfully, we never had to look at that tacky old stuff again. (laughs) Now, both tinsel and garland can be used tastefully, but whether you use tinsel or not, I discovered it has an interesting legend behind it. The exact details depend on who you're reading, but the story goes something like this. There was a poor but hardworking widow who uh, lived in a small hut with her children and One summer day, a pine cone happened to fall somehow into the hut and roll onto their dirt floor where it took root and a tree began to grow. And the children were so excited that maybe by Christmas they would be able to have a nice Christmas tree. And the tree grew, but when Christmas Eve came, the family couldn't afford to decorate it with even homemade ornaments. And so the children went to sleep a little bit sad. Well, early the next morning, to their surprise, when they woke up, they saw the tree covered with cobwebs. When they opened the windows, the first rays of sunlight touched the cobwebs, transforming them them magically into gold and silver, and the widow and her children, overjoyed, never lived in poverty again. Now, let me ask you a question. If you woke up on Christmas morning and your entire Christmas tree was covered with cobwebs, how many of you would never live in your house again? (laughs) Mm. That legend birthed the legend of the Christmas spider. 
And there are people who will make spider ornaments and hang those on their tree in memory of this story. And I'd never heard about any of this until I was researching for this message. Does anybody do the spider ornament thing? Is it like part of your family tradition? Yeah, I didn't think so. That's just a little creepy to me if you... Well, while that cobweb story is rather interesting, the original origin of tinsel really dates back to about 1610 in Germany. And uh, tinsel was first placed on those Christmas trees then to help reflect the light of the candles that were on the tree as they were decorated. And, of course, since they were made out of uh, real silver or eventually other shiny metals... Only the wealthy could afford a true, real garland of the thing. And so it was only kind of something the elite had. But over the years, advances in manufacturing made tinsel available to the masses. And uh, by the early 20th century, uh, most consumers could afford tinsel garland. And so by the 1950s, when a lot of you grew up, I mean, that's what our tree looked like when I was a kid. With all the tinsel on it and everything. And it was really the tinsel and the garland began to overpower even the lights on the tree. And something struck me as I thought about this history of tinsel. Tinsel was first meant merely to enhance the light of the tree. But it eventually overshadowed the light of the tree. You've got to be careful with tinsel because it will take over. And that's the lesson that we learn today as we continue our series, Humble or Humbug. Philippians 2, 7 says, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great almighty, the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, made himself nothing, took on the nature of a slave, was made in human likeness. There was no tinsel in the manger. As John says in the prologue to his gospel, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus is the real light of Christmas. Tinsel brings a humbug light. And if we're not careful, it can overshadow the true light. Other than being far more primitive than the crowded one-room sleeping quarters of the first century in, the stable, or, or more private, the stable area where Jesus was born wasn't an ideal place for the birth of a baby. In fact, it was a rather disastrous place, if you think about it. Uh, was the hay clean? Uh, probably not. But even if it was, who puts their baby on hay? And were the cloths in which Jesus was swaddled sterile? No way. Was there a midwife to help deliver the baby? Apparently not. So had Joseph ever delivered a baby? Probably not. Mary certainly had never been through the experience, though as a, as a young Jewish girl, maybe, perhaps she had helped with some births before. Maybe she could give Joseph some instructions. And so there among the snorts of horses, the slobbers of calves, and the brays of donkeys, the king of the universe was born. Instead of smelling like Johnson and Johnson's, the stable 
smelled like a barn. The pleasing aroma of hay mixed with the not-so-pleasing aroma of manure. Then later on that night, the shepherds came. Dirty and smelly from days out in the field, sleeping under the stars, the shepherds crowded into the stable and knelt before the baby. Now, I assume Joseph and Mary weren't exactly fresh out of the shower either. And so if everybody thinks, everybody smells fine. But it was a rough kind of scene there. It's nothing like what I see when I go visit a fresh-born baby these days. I mean, when you go to the hospital these days, you find the room number, and once you get past 17 layers of security, and you get into the place where the people are, you find the room, and there's this wonderful wreath that's there, and it's got all the stats of the baby, and you open the door, and it smells nice, and everything's clean, and the baby's all swaddled up tighter than a burrito, and everything's just so nice and perfect and clean. But the manger was far, far different. Clearly, when you looked around that nativity scene, you would say, hmm, there's no tinsel here. For some reason, we like to fancy up the Christmas story. We think it needs some tinsel or maybe even a lot. In fact, the very first nativity scene that Rebecca and I ever received um, has gold filigree on it. And I'm sure it came from a dollar store. It's not that fancy. But to look at it, you would think everyone in the nativity came straight out of the pages of Forbes magazine. I mean, I get the magi might have been wealthy, but the shepherd, man, he's got gold trim on everything. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus, everything's just glistening. And while Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, on that night he was surrounded by cattle not owning the cattle. There was no tinsel there. And that was on purpose. It was on purpose. Because the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. No humbug light needed to even reflect the light on that night. And certainly it couldn't be allowed to overshadow it. So every Christmas we need to bring ourselves back to the nativity as it was. And remember, there's no tinsel here. To drive home this fact, let's consider a couple of truths about Jesus today. The first is that Jesus had no tinsel in his appearance. Please turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 53. You know, Isaiah tells us more about the coming of the Messiah than any other prophet. In fact, there are over a hundred prophecies about the Messiah in Isaiah. And many of those actually come from this chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And notice how Isaiah tells us that Jesus had no tinsel in his appearance. The second part of verse 2, where Isaiah says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah said hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, that the Messiah would look rather unimpressive. We typically want our leaders to look nice. In fact, if you're going to win political office, some charisma and decent looks help out a little bit. 
You need to look good in the commercials and on the photographs and on the pamphlets. And in fact, you just have to go back to the first televised presidential debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy to realize what a difference the image of a leader makes. Some of you may have seen that debate when it was originally aired in 1960. That was a long time before I was born. But in that debate, the very first one that had ever been done, the people who watched the debate on television thought Kennedy had won by a landslide, but the people who listened on radio felt that Richard Nixon had won by a landslide. Image was everything. On the television, Kennedy appeared rested and tanned, whereas Richard Nixon appeared sickly and just a little bit uh, nervous. They even said that Richard Nixon had not shaved that day, and even in a non-HD television age, when the camera zoomed in, you could see the stubble on his face. Nixon had refused to wear makeup. He didn't want to, somebody to report that he was made up in the news. And so he kind of missed his opportunity to look good on national television. Then you had Kennedy with a dark suit, which contrasted in a black and white age, whereas Nixon's kind of faded into the background in a black and white age. We, we did boil down to the fact that Kennedy had some tinsel. Nixon had stubble. But little, a little tinsel in appearance has always been what we've looked for in leaders. And even when you go back to 1 Samuel, when the prophet Samuel was preparing to anoint the very first king of Israel, he went to the home of a Benjamite named Kish, and he found this guy's son, Saul. And the Bible records that Saul was an impressive young man. Without equal among the Israelites. In fact, he was even a head taller than everybody else. He was the, from the right family. He was the right look. In fact, everyone literally looked up to him. He was perfect for king. And so, since the people wanted a king, God gave them exactly what they wanted. A good-looking, poster-boy kind of king. And it was disastrous. In fact, in one of his very first acts as king, Saul disobeyed God. He continued to do so until finally God took his hand off of him and Samuel walked out of his life and Saul spent the rest of his monarchy all alone without a word from the Lord. And though Saul would reign for a total of 40 years, God, right after rejecting him as king, anointed another king who would then wait until Saul died to become king. And that new king was David. Whereas Saul was exactly what the people wanted, David was exactly what they needed. And when Samuel goes to anoint the second king, the story is a little bit different. With Saul, we're told of all of his appearance and all of these wonderful things. Well, in 1 Samuel 16, God says of one of David's older brothers who looked like a king, don't consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel seeks the Lord and ends up anointing the least likely son of Jesse of all. The son David. Who is out busy 
tending the flocks instead of waiting to be king like the rest of his brothers. Now, we do find out that David is ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features, but the emphasis is not there. It's actually on the next verse where we read that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. But still, David had a little tinsel. But Jesus had no tinsel in his appearance. Apparently none at all. Now, I don't think he was ugly or deformed, but he wouldn't have been on the cover of People magazine or included in their 50th, 50 best-looking people in the world. He was just a plain-looking carpenter from Nazareth. Today, you can buy tinsel to decorate your beard. Jesus didn't have any of that. He had no tinsel in his appearance. He also had no tinsel of reputation. Look at the next verse in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. And Jesus certainly was. A few months ago in journeying through the gospel of John, John introduced his gospel in saying, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it in John 1 5 and then in verse 11 of John chapter 1 he says he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him uh, Matthew Mark and Luke tell us of how Jesus was rejected in his hometown remember when he goes to teach in the synagogue there in Nazareth and the people are amazed but then they say hey wait a second and Matthew records it this way where'd this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And, and then it says, they took offense at him. They start out amazed, but then they take offense. Remember what happened in John 1, 43 and following when after Jesus called Philip as his disciple, Philip then goes to Nathanael and tells Nathanael, hey man, look, we have found the one the prophets wrote about, Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what was Nathanael's reply? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Jesus didn't come. From an important family. He didn't have a trust fund or a degree from an Ivy League university. He was just a plain looking carpenter from Nazareth. You know when you attend a function of some sort and there's a guest speaker. The guest speaker is introduced. And whoever introduces the speakers. Their job is to glisten the tinsel of the guest speaker. So that you'll want to listen to the speaker when they get up. They'll list degrees and titles and awards and accomplishments and more. And the introducer's job is to make you just be like, ooh, ooh, he's glistening, he's shiny. Let me listen to him. We pay attention to reputation, so that's why we do that. But we wouldn't have been attracted to Jesus because of his reputation. In fact, I got to thinking... 
wonder what it'd be like if Jesus was introduced to the Jerusalem Rotary Club. You got all the muckety-mucks of the town there. And Jesus is the guest speaker. And I can imagine it'd be like, our guest speaker today is Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody goes, Nazareth? A carpenter by trade? Jesus is now an itinerant teacher with a volunteer ministry staff of 12. They have no headquarters, and he has no home. I can imagine one guy leaning over to another and saying, man, they must be scraping the bottom today for a speaker. And then I tell you what they did. They pull out their phone and they start checking Facebook of the first century. Because <laughs> I've done it at Rotary myself before. We want people to have some tinsel of reputation. But Jesus had none. One of the greatest statements made at President Bush's funeral this week, at his state funeral, was by Senator Alan Simpson. I love this. Those who travel the high road of humility in Washington, D.C. are not bothered by heavy traffic. Isn't that great? D.C., is full of humbugs rattling their tinsel. Someone who is humble stands out in that mess. And much more was true of Jesus Christ. So if he didn't have any of the normal tinsel that we admire, what is there to attract us to Jesus? Jesus. I mean, really, it's just Jesus. Jesus is enough. What made the shepherds bow before that baby that first Christmas night? Now, I know angels had appeared to them, and certainly that made them go. But once they got to that manger, what was it about Jesus? He had no tinsel. There was, there was not a halo glowing over his head. It was just Jesus. When Mary and Jesus, Joseph brought Jesus to the temple uh, when he was eight days old, what, what made old man Simeon take him in his arms and worship? I mean, I know the Spirit urged him, but once Simeon came to the baby and his parents, what moved him to worship? Jesus had no tinsel. It was just Jesus. When the old lady Anna then came up to the parents and the baby, what made her worship the Lord because of him? I know she'd been fasting and praying and never left the temple, but when she saw Jesus, it was just Jesus. For the shepherds, for Simeon, for Anna, it was just Jesus. Because Jesus is enough. I found an online forum where the question was posed, what is it about the character of Jesus that attracts people to Christianity? And a person responded in this way. The Gospels depict Jesus as an extremely profound teacher with a certain serenity and confidence in his words and deeds. Even before his passion, I thought he was someone worth following. His personality is compelling that even for a non-Christian, there's always something positive he can take from the life of Jesus. But in the end, his sacrifice is all that matters. Completely innocent, 
He took on the blame and the punishment for all of mankind's sins. Any man who cares enough to do that for me deserves my respect and gratitude. And my life is in debt to him. See, it's just Jesus. Because Jesus laid down his life for us. And that is enough. There's no tinsel here. And there was no tinsel on the cross. Because there was not any need for any. A humbug will be found out. But Jesus was found to be truly faithful and loving. Have you given your life over to him? Have you surrendered to who he is? In 1939, Eugene was seven years old. And that year his mom decided they would not get a Christmas tree. His mom had been convicted that Christmas had gotten a little bit too blingy. And become too much of a distraction. There were too many shiny ornaments, too many glittery whatnot. So that year, there was no jumping of Eugene into his dad's old pickup and heading out to the country to harvest a tree from the wild. There were no ornaments, there was no tinsel. And to Eugene, without a tree, Christmas just didn't feel like Christmas. He was embarrassed, frankly. Would others think they couldn't afford a tree? So he started to think about excuses when his friends might ask, Hey man, why don't you have a Christmas tree in your front window? He thought, well, my sister has a contagious disease. Or, my mom's just mad. Or, my dad's too busy. Anything to avoid talking about the real reason that his mom was wanting to do away with the distractions of Christmas. Well, Eugene's best friends smelled a rat, but it was his uncle who made the biggest protest. As the family was gathering for Christmas, he said, why do we not have a Christmas tree? We've always had a Christmas tree. And Eugene's mom replied, no tree this year, brother, just Jesus. So you can understand why the next year, as Christmas began to approach, that Eugene held his breath. Would it be another year without a tree? Would that be their new tradition? Oddly enough, that year was different. Back the tree came. Eugene and his dad jumped in the old pickup, headed out to the country, harvested a perfect Douglas fir from the wild, and order had been restored to Eugene's world. Eugene has now celebrated nearly 80 Christmases since that odd Christmas with no tree. But as he thinks about it now, seasoned with life experience and a mature faith, he senses But those feelings he had as a seven-year-old boy were the true feelings of Christmas. The feeling of humiliation, of being misunderstood, of being an outsider. After all, isn't that what Jesus experienced? People didn't get him. Most rejected him. Most still do. That year in 1939, Eugene really got the true meaning of Christmas. And ever since then, Eugene has called the Christmas of 39, Jesus without tinsel. And whether we have a tree or not, whether we have tinsel on our trees or not, Christmas should still be Jesus without tinsel. 
He doesn't need it. All the tinsel of Christmas, the decorations, the lights, the shiny balls, even the tinsel, are to serve the purpose of that first tinsel in the trees of the 1600s, which does merely reflect the light of Jesus. Not to overcome the light of Jesus as the trees of the 1950s. As you celebrate this holiday season, make sure that the true light of Jesus is being reflected. Whether you have tinsel or not, may the true person of Christmas come forward. And even if there is a little tinsel, may you be able to honestly say, there's no tinsel here. Jesus is enough. Let's pray together. We thank you, Jesus, that you are enough. And we pray, Lord, for those in this room today who have never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that we would consider the infant in the manger and all that he means. And that we would surrender our lives to you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for speaking this word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.